Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Sarah Schaefer. When you see it in movies, you're like, this is such bullshit. But it happens when you're very upset. I slid down the wall, (laughs) sobbing. (laughs) That and more. But first, folks, there's a lot of Risk Live shows coming up very soon. On September 20th, we're in L.A. at the Hotel Cafe. The show's at 7 p.m. Pacific That's September 20th. Then, on September 22nd, we're in New York at Caveat. The show's at 9.30 p.m. Eastern on September 22nd. Finally, on November 11th, Risk is in Reno, Nevada. It's unbelievable that this show is finally happening. This is the show that I flew all the way out there to Reno to do in mid-March of 2020 and then had to fly right back home because everything started shutting down and we're finally returning to make it happen. Going to be a lot of crazy stories in Reno, November 11th. The venue is called The Theater. On Keystone Avenue, it is at 8 p.m., and you can get tickets for any of these shows and for the live streams of the New York and L.A. shows if you go to risk-show.com slash tour. Now here's the show. Risk! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is St. John Coltrane, as my father used to call him behind me now. And we're calling this week's episode Mistreated. You know, I think that one way we can learn how to treat one another better is to hear about people's experiences around this sort of thing. And in a little bit, we're going to... I meant in a little bit. (laughs) We're going to hear from Latasha Wright. I'll tell you, Latasha is such a breath of fresh air. A lot of people incorrectly stereotype scientists as being dry, monotone sorts of people. But Latasha is anything but... And she also teaches biology to kids all over New York City from a bus called the BioBus. And at the end of the episode, I'll tell you all about how over at the podcast, The Story Collider, they helped us out with this story. But before that, we're going to hear from the brilliant writer, actress, comedian, Sarah Schaefer. Her podcast is called The Schaefer Shakedown. Her memoir is called Grand. And here's Sarah Shaver now at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles with a story we call My Bully. I was afraid of everything day one. Just like my fears from day one were just, the list is so long. Dogs, comets, nuclear war. I Yes, this was the 80s. Um, there was a lot of comet fear and nuclear war fear in the 80s, if you grew up then. 
I was afraid of water, uh, especially the ocean. My parents had to bring down a baby pool to the beach. I somehow convinced them to do this and put fresh water in it. And that was their way of like controlling me on the beach because I hated it. Um, afraid of so many things I could never do. I've never done a cartwheel. Anything where you're doing something with things on your feet that aren't shoes. So like skis, <laughs> roller skates, things like that. But my biggest fear of all was getting in trouble. Um, I don't know if anyone else has or ha had or has that fear. I still have it in me. I was obsessed with always being correct morally and never ruffling any feathers or getting in trouble of any kind. And this is kind of how I just came into the world. I was pre-baked that way. But then something happened when I was 12 years old that sort of really set it like a, like a bone healing out of place. And that was when my dad called a family meeting and he sat us all down and he said, I've done something wrong. <laughs> and I'm thinking, uh, excuse me? And what did, what? I was 12. It was hard to understand what he was even saying. But he said that he had, he had engaged in inappropriate use of his client's funds. He was a lawyer and that the next day he was going to turn himself in. And my brain was scanning. I was thinking, okay, this sounds really serious, um, but the school play is tomorrow and I really need to practice my lines. So I started screaming, <laughs> why do you always have to do stuff like this the day before the school play? <laughs> Like, this had ever happened before, but I think, like, years before, my, my grandpa died the day before the school play, and it just fucked it all up, and I was just like, these peasants don't understand. Um, I went upstairs and slammed the door and practiced my lines as Viking number four in a Hagar the Horrible musical. <sighs> Charge! That was my one line. Um... <laughs> It was really crazy. So we were kind of like a, a new rich uh, kind of family outside of Richmond, Virginia. But after that, um, everything changed and we got brought down several pegs in the class system there. Um, my parents lost all their friends and my mom was a stay-at-home mom and my dad obviously lost his job. Things were real tense for a while, but my dad was a totally different person. He was like chewing gum, like really in a good mood because the weight had been lifted. Leading up to this, this secret he had that had spun out of control, he was contemplating taking his own life up to this moment. And then in a moment of extreme stress, he, he came home from work in his Porsche and he checked the mail and there was just a regular old birthday card in there from my older sister who was in college. And she just said, I'm proud that you're my dad. And he just broke open, went inside and told my mom. And then that night he told us and the next day he told the world. After that point, my mom decided that this was all part of God's plan and that Jesus forgives. And that really hit me deep. You know, I'd lay at, at, awake at night thinking of a Bible verse from Mark, which is, I'm paraphrasing, um, that whatever is in the dark will be brought to light. And I thought, yeah, that's true. So you probably should never do anything wrong because they're going to find out eventually. <laughs> and all of this tied up into a very neat narrative for me that um, I didn't really undo until 
many, many years later in therapy. But in the immediate aftermath, my parents were like, you know what, this is a private family matter. We don't need to tell anybody at school. We don't need to talk about it. If anyone calls the house asking questions, don't tell them anything. And I'm like, huh? And people were calling the house. And one time a man called and was like, is Bill Schaefer there? And I'm like, um, no, he's not. I had to like write down, I'm also afraid of phone calls. And um, so I had scripts <laughs> well into my 20s. <laughs> But I had a little piece of paper that would say, he is not here right now. May I please take a message? You know, And uh, the man said, well, where is he? And I just hung up because <laughs> I was so scared. At school, though, I remember distinctly in the days after or weeks after this incident, um, which my whole family called the incident. <laughs> after the incident, I remember at school walking down the hallway and someone went, Sarah Schaefer's dad is a thief. And I thought, how did that guy find out? Um, it turns out, and I didn't find this out until many, many years later, that my parents had sent a letter to our friends' parents to kind of get ahead of it, um, but didn't tell us. So it, it, it was really fucked up. But they did what they thought was best. So that's how it got around at school. But I thought, did I somehow like give it away with my face, you know? Um, so it really kind of made me feel very unstable at school, which was already very unstable there because I was such a dork. And in our new lesser class neighborhood, I had made a friend. Her name was Rebecca, and we would ride our bikes around the neighborhood, and she was kind of my lifeline. And this was also at the time when a new trend had overtaken teen girls across America, and that is the best friend necklace from Claire's Boutique. I don't know if you remember the best friend necklace set. It is a uh, two-part necklace. It's two necklaces, and each one has half of a heart with a jagged division, and it says best friends forever on it, and you split that with your best friend. I wanted nothing more in the world, nothing more in the world than to split a necklace with someone. And, you know, uh, competition was fierce. The girls in school were pairing up left and right. And I'm thinking, I got to get in on this with somebody. You know, I got to lock a bitch down. <laughs> and, like, how do I get her? <laughs> um, because to have a B, if you think about it, to have a BFF necklace is a status, right? Because it says, I have at least two friends, one of which is the superior best friend. It's not the OFF necklace, only friend forever. It's best friend forever. So I'm looking at Rebecca and I'm thinking, she's the one. And I got the courage up to pop the question one day at school. I was going to ask her. She wanted to split a best friend necklace with me. I thought maybe we had bonded enough on our bicycles in the neighborhood. And I'm going to approach her. And it was at that moment I see her in the hallway. And I just see this shiny glint hanging from her neck. It's a best friend necklace half. I couldn't even get in. You know, they had three-way ones. Remember those? I couldn't even ride bitch on one of those things. I see her, she's got her half, and I just, 
fell apart internally. I just went, I remember like sticking my head. Do you remember in middle school, like if you had a real moment of panic, you could kind of stick your head in your locker. Like, oh, I'm looking for something. <laughs> but like, <laughs> you get your shit together. And you're like, here's my binder. <laughs> I got my shit together. I went to third period. And I opened my notebook and I began to write an epic note to Rebecca. It was two pages of me explaining to her why she was wrong, that I was in fact her best friend, and that she had destroyed me. And I definitely included, because um, this was like the term had really become popular at this time, I definitely included you suck <laughs> in, the, in the note. It didn't end on a nice note. I was just, it was a note of pain. And I folded it into a very neat triangle with the little pull here tab. I dropped it on her desk and I walked away in slow motion as the world burned down behind me. <laughs> that afternoon, I get home and the phone rings. My brother answers it and he's like, Sarah, it's for you. And I'm thinking, oh, is this Rebecca? seeing the air of her ways. Is this another girl that maybe I don't realize had her eye on me? Because there were only a few of us left in the school. We had to find each other quick or be left out. I pick up the phone and it's not a teen girl. It's an adult woman. And she goes, is this Sarah Schaefer? And I'm like, yes. And she was like, this is Rebecca's mother. And I was like... I immediately, before she said a word, just from the tone, I thought, I'm getting in trouble. <laughs> and I burst into tears, and she goes, how dare you speak to my daughter the way you did in that note? I read it. And I just, I remember, it's such a... <laughs> When you see it in movies, you're like, this is such bullshit. But it happens when you're very upset. I slid down the wall, <laughs> sobbing. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You just hurt my feelings. Like, I'm just losing my... My brother was like... <laughs> He's like a full-blown teenager at this point. He's just like, Jesus Christ. Like, goes outside. I'm sorry. She was like, you better be sorry. And you know what? You're going to tell her you're sorry. And you're going to write her a new note. And you're going to say how sorry you are in that note. Or I'm going to tell your parents. You want me to tell your parents? Do you? Do you? I'll never forget that. I was so afraid. I mean, just a free fall of terror of this woman telling my parents. There were so many things wrapped up in this, by the way. I had answered the phone. I was talking to an adult asking me questions. Not only that, Rebecca's dad was the chief of police. <laughs> and I thought at a time when I actually was for real afraid that the police were going to show up at my house at any moment and take my dad away... I had angered the child and wife of the chief of police. I was fucked. So I, that night, under the covers with a flashlight, because I didn't want anyone to know that how much trouble I was in, I wrote this note to Rebecca saying I was sorry. And then at the end of the note, I said, please 
please do not show this note to your mother. <laughs> Give it to her the next day. The next afternoon, the phone rings again, and it's this bitch. And she's like, how dare you? Do you realize when you said, don't show this note to your, that's not an apology. I mean, she, and she was like, Rebecca didn't show me the note. I found it in her backpack. I'm like, bitch, she showed you the note. Like, whatever it was, the, the apology wasn't good enough. She goes, you're going to write it again. I mean, this woman was full on bullying me, but I didn't realize it at the time. I was just totally thought I was in the wrong. So I'm again crying, sliding down the wall. I go up to my bed that night. I write another note. This is when I really, I'm very actually, in looking in hindsight, I'm a little bit grateful because I really did learn what a real apology is. So if I was to ever get canceled, I would know how to apologize correctly. <laughs> Immediately, just apologize and do it the right way. Don't do it the shitty way. So they won't be satisfied. So I do the other note. I hand it to Rebecca. I mean, what a humiliating, like, here's your second. I mean, do you think Rebecca gave... <laughs> Rebecca's like, I'm caught up in this too. I give her the note again. I'm just walking around school just so afraid at this point. I had definitely flown too close to the BFF necklace, son. I never tried again. Rebecca's mom didn't call. I guess the note was good enough. And I didn't tell a soul for 20 years. <laughs> and then one day in my 20s, I told my mom the story. And she went... <sighs> I wish you had told me I would have destroyed that woman. I was like, fuck. Like, and it's one of those things as a teen, you just can't really know when you're so afraid of getting in trouble, the shame of it all. You just don't know that your parents, hopefully, I was lucky to have parents that were really on my side. And I bet if I had told them, it would have been, I mean, it would have been awesome. But I guess the moral of the story is don't worry so much about the moral of every story. <laughs> guys, thank you so much. You guys are easily the best friends I've ever had. You know, I was saving these BFF necklaces I found on my last expedition for my true best friends. And today, I think I found them. Do you guys want to be my BFFs? <gasps> They're beautiful. We'd love to. I was fucked. I gotta get in on this with somebody, you know? I gotta lock a bitch down. I couldn't even ride bitch on one of those things. <laughs> I'm sorry! I'm sorry, I'm sorry! You just hurt my feelings! <laughs> Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess 
whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I woke up with this feeling of foreboding. I just didn't feel right. Like, I felt off, you know? And I remember thinking, maybe I should stay home today. And that's very uncharacteristic of me because I'm a workaholic. I love to work. I'm going, go, go. You got this kind of person. And I also had, like, a lot to do today. I had presentations to give. I had meetings to do things. And so I was like, no, you got this, you can go. And I put on my big girl panties and I went to work. And when I got to work, you know, I was like, okay, you made it, you can do this. So I wanted to reward myself. So I went to get some breakfast and I I got avocado toast, you know, for New York City, $12. And I got orange juice, extravagance. And I remember sitting down, getting ready to have my feast. And then I still wasn't feeling great, but I was like, okay, I have this wonderful breakfast. Things are gonna go great today. So I took a bite and I started eating, but it just felt like it tasted funny. It was metallic and there was just something off about it. And then I started seeing these weird aura and it looked like invisible confetti. And I was like, what, what's happening? And so then I went to the bathroom and I splashed water on my face and then I got this intense pain in my right eye. And it was like someone is taking an ice pick and like jabbing in the eye. And I staggered back into the laboratory and my friend and colleague was there, Francesca. And I was like, Francesca, Francesca, help. And she's like, what? What's happening? And I want to just like stop here and kind of tell you who I am. I'm a PhD molecular biology and I study neuroscience. And Francesca is also a PhD, but she specialized in migraines. And so when I told her what was happening, she was like, oh, you're having a migraine and you're experienced a migraine aura. And this is only going to last an hour, so you'll be fine. 
and I'm thinking I'm dying, right? Because this is the most intense pain that I've had, right? So I lay down on top of this lab bench and I'm just started crying and feeling very sorry for myself. And she's looking at me like, you know, it's okay, fine. And I was like, okay. And she was like, let's go home. So we called the cab and went to my house and she brought her work and she was sitting at my desk doing her work. And I took some Tylenol and laid down, tried to get some rest. And then she was like, I'm gonna set a timer for an hour and you should be better in an hour. And I was like, okay. And I laid down and I remember just trying to like think happy thoughts and not like, you know, be obsessed with the pain. And then after an hour, it wasn't as painful, but I still couldn't see out of my right eye. It was like I had put my hand over my right eye. It was completely black. She was like, okay, you should see now. And I was like, I can't. And so then we both started getting a little bit worried and we started thinking maybe it wasn't a migraine. Maybe there's something else. She started like looking things up on Google and I was like, let me go get some water because, you know, water helps everything, obviously. And, <laughs> and I was like getting water and then my whole left side collapsed. And I was like at the sink holding on and I called her. She came in, running into the kitchen and I was like, I can't stand up. And so she helped me to the floor and then she called 911. And I live in the Bronx, and I live really close to Lincoln Hospital. And so the ambulance came really fast. And I remember them coming. It was like two very young kids. And I remember thinking, these little kids, they don't know anything. <laughs> and they were asking me like questions like, smile, hold out your hands. And they tried to push them down, and they like resisted. They were like, oh, yeah, no, we don't see anything wrong with you. But they said, we can take you to the emergency room. And I, and I remember thinking, oh, I hate the emergency room. Maybe I should decline. And then Francesca, you know, the look on her face made me say, okay. And so I got on the gurney and they, I remember, you know, them rolling me out of my apartment building. I remember passing my doorman and him looking like, what's happening? And I'm like, I don't know. See you later. And then when they got me to the emergency room, I was like, oh, at least I'm coming in on the ambulance, so I should be seen right away, right? Because they're taking me to the emergency room on the ambulance, so I'm number one, right? So, of course, they deposited me on these hard plastic chairs, and they gave me the peace sign, and they were out. And I was like, <laughs> Wow. And I remember thinking, I just paid $500 for a lift, you know? And it was like, I did not jump the line. <laughs> and meanwhile, you know, Francesca is texting frantically to my friends, like, to come, Sasha, Peel, and also Nadia. You know, I'm in crisis. She's, like, trying to make sure that I'm okay. And I remember sitting there, and then she was like, oh... I'm going to go get our other friend out of the, in front of the hospital and show them where we are. And when she left, I started feeling funny again. And I started feeling this 
magnetic taste and I started seeing this aura and I remember feeling woozy a little bit and I flagged somebody down and I was like help and they came by me and they were like yeah just a minute and I remember thinking but I need help and that's really the only thing I can remember from there Francesca came back she immediately knew that something was wrong because like my face started drooping and I was unresponsive and so she did the assessments on me that she saw the paramedics do. And she realized that I was having a stroke right then. So I was in the middle of the busiest emergency room in New York City having a massive stroke. If Francesca wouldn't have walked back, I don't know what would happen to me because I, was, I couldn't remember anything from that point. Francesca went, she went where she saw a big cluster of doctors and she put up this big stink and she was saying, I'm a neurologist from Columbia and my friend is dying. <laughs> she's right over there and she's dying and no one's helping her. And she remembers them saying, oh, them looking at her and be like, oh, she's from Columbia. But they came and it worked. She said I was immediately surrounded by doctors and they started doing assessments on me. And when I came to, I was like, I remember laying down and hearing my friends around me and I could hear the doctors behind me and they were tapping me and asking me questions. And I remember them saying, lift your right leg. And I remember thinking, okay, I could do that lift, you know, lift. <laughs> and I tried, you know, I felt the strain in my body, like lifting, but nothing was happening. They were like, okay, honey, lift now. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I remember screaming out, I'm trying, I'm trying. And then they were like, okay, okay, it's fine. Don't do it. Don't worry about it. And then they asked me to lift my right hand and my right leg. And I was able to do that. And that's when I realized, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in trouble here. And so then they were like, who do you want to make decisions for you? And I could hear who was in the room. And I remember saying, okay, I'm gonna pick Peel. So I said her name and they were like, you're talking about Peel? And I was like, yes, Peel. I remember thinking, oh, I'm gonna have to really explain to my friends why I picked Peel over everybody else. And like, but. Peel was the only one not crying. Everybody else was crying. <laughs> and I felt like Peel was the one that could make these decisions and be able to be that type of stand-up girl that I needed. Then they started asking me other questions. And they were like, okay, it seems like you're in the four-hour window and you can get this TPA. But we need to know your weight. And I was like, what? What, are you going to ask me my age next? Never. <laughs> I'm not telling you. And they were like, how much do you know how much you weigh? And I was like, yes, which was an absolute truth. Then they asked me, and I absolutely lied. <laughs> because I felt like, you don't ask a lady that in front of her friends. <laughs> and I know they knew I was lying because they were like, are you sure? And I'm like, yes, of course. With this like sense of smirkiness that 
you know, I felt like we were all joking together. And it went on for a minute. And so next thing you know, they gave me the medicine. It didn't work. Surprise. Wonder why. Uh-huh. <laughs> then they called in a specialist. And he is this guy who goes to emergency rooms, obviously, and does this one procedure. He basically went in through my groin and put a needle in my brain and sucked out the clock. He saved my life, apparently. So the next thing I remember, it was the next day, I believe, is waking up in the ICU, having my friends around me, and them immediately, when I opened my eyes, yelling at me, can you see, can you see, can you see? And I was like, all right, let me open my eyes and see if I can see. And I remember opening my eyes It wasn't completely black on the right side, but it was blurred. A little bit of spots were missing in my eye. So I was like, yeah, I can kind of see. And I lift my right leg and I lift my right arm and they were like, they started hugging me and they were like, you're okay, you're okay. And I was like, okay, I'm okay. (laughs) And it was like, you know, the procedure worked and I could see and also could move. The doctor, he told them that before he did the procedure that either I would die or I could be permanently paralyzed or I could be okay. I ended up being okay. So that is how I woke up and I was thinking, okay, well, this is over. I'm, I'm good now because I could see and I can move. And I remember feeling just happy for that. But What happened after waking up is really what scarred me a lot and kind of changed my perception of myself. I started interacting with these doctors who would come into my room and they had all of these preconceived notions about me. They would just walk in and be like, so how long have you let your high blood pressure be uncontrolled? And I was like, I don't have high blood pressure. And they're like, yeah, but how long have you you had high cholesterol? And I'm like, I don't have high cholesterol. And they wouldn't even look at my chart. They just came in and they saw a black woman laying in the bed. And they assumed that I had all of these risk factors because I was 40 and I had a stroke. And I didn't fit the preconceived notions of what someone who had a stroke should be. And so they obviously thought that I was negligent in some way in my own care of myself. It became to the point where every 30 minutes someone would come in, a different group would come in to kind of say these kind of accusatory things. And then Francesca, who is a cisgendered Italian female, started getting pissed. And like it just got to the point where I just kind of shut down and Francesca just took over. Like, she would always work in that I was a neuroscientist and that I was super smart and I knew all of these things. And I realized that (laughs) I couldn't just be me and deserving of care and deserving of, like, just basic decency. Like, she had to, like, put this label in front of me before they could see me. And I thought... This is horrible. 
And it also was like that she had to do it and I couldn't do it. Even though these are my accomplishments, this is who I am. I am still not able to advocate for myself. Somebody else had to do it for me. So it was very frustrating and I really felt like giving up. Those couple days were like some of the most traumatic times I've had in my life. And it wasn't the stroke, but it was the how I was treated after the stroke that really scarred me the most. I ended up going to the regular wards in that time. They had a physical therapist come to like help me to walk because, you know, even though I could move, I wasn't able to move my leg completely. So then they were like, okay, you're going to need physical therapy. So they got ready to discharge me because like my insurance wasn't, didn't work at that hospital. And there was really no aftercare because my insurance didn't work with that hospital. And I remember them discharging me and they were like, don't forget to talk to a doctor about your diabetes. (laughs) And I was like, I don't have diabetes. They still just could not fathom that there was no risk factors for me. After I left, it took me about eight months to find a doctor who cared and who was actually curious about why this happened to me. I had an aortic dissection, right? That is basically, it's normal from when you get like a trauma, like you're in a car accident or somebody hits you in the neck. And so the doctors were convinced, you know, that I was in a car wreck that didn't tell them or that I was in some type of domestic violence situation and I didn't want to tell them. And none of these things are true. They were just kind of threw up their heads and they were just like, she's just not telling us. And it's this thing. And they were done. So it took me literally eight months. Maybe I went through like about 10 doctors to find one that was curious to why this actually happened to me and helped me to understand why. Because I felt like I had this ticking time bomb in my body that I had no idea whether or not I would wake up one day and have this thing happen to me and there would be no one around to help me. I didn't know, like, what was wrong? Why did I have this stroke? It was really a long road to recovery. It took me a couple of months to be able to walk long distances by myself through physical therapy. But there were some bright spots, a really big bright spot. My friends really rallied behind me. You know, I'm single, work obsessed. I'm always wondering, you know, when I get old, what's gonna happen, you know? What's gonna happen when I'm by myself? Because, you know, I don't have any immediate family in New York City and stuff like that. But my friends made this calendar and it was called Latasha's Army. And they all signed up to bring me food, go shopping, just come hang out with me. My brother, he came to stay with me for like a month. And it just made me realize that 
I had this community of people who would invest their time and their resources to make sure I was okay. And I know that a lot of Black women, we are always apprehensive about going to the doctor and being our own advocate. And I found the antidote to this inequities in healthcare is to have this great group of diverse women who are there to kind of stand in the gap of where healthcare is inequitable. They're able to bridge that gap for you and be the advocates for each other. I'm so happy that I have this amazing group of friends who have shown me that no matter what, they're going to be there for me and I'm always going to be there for them. And even though we aren't like blood related, we're definitely close. We will always be there for each other. I may have lost sight in my right eye, but my vision for the future hasn't been clearer. Want a song about it? Like to hear it? Here it go. Free your mind. I wear tight clothing, high heel shoes. It doesn't mean that I'm a prostitute. No, no. I like rap music. Wear hip hop clothes. Almost all for this week's episode, folks. This is En Vogue behind me now. And we just heard from Latasha Wright. Now, the way I met Latasha was really cool. I told a story on the fantastic storytelling show, The Story Collider, here in New York, a couple months back. And you can hear me tell that story on a very recent episode of The Story Collider podcast. That episode is called Out of Place. But the night I told that story, Latasha was also on the show. And she told the story about how she had a stroke and was mistreated by the people in the medical system because they were stereotyping her that night. And afterwards, I said to both Latasha and to Aaron Barker, the executive director of the Story Collider, I said, I wonder if both of our podcasts could feature different versions 
of that story because I always find it fascinating when someone shares a story in a different context and style. So on the latest episode of the Story Collider podcast, it's the episode called Strength in Numbers, you can hear Latasha sharing a live version, live on stage version of this story you just heard here. And here's what that sounds like. They ended up calling the specialist. Apparently, this guy is like Batman. He goes to different, you know, hospitals doing feats of amazingness. And so he was like this hot, caring, loving guy who, you know, all of my friends fell in love with. And they kept talking about him afterwards. They were like, let's let's find and follow him on Facebook. You know, let's look at this Instagram. They just fell in love with him. He was a nerd and hot. And everybody was like, oh, let's try to meet him again. So be sure to check out the Story Collider podcast for that. And you can find Latasha Wright at biobus.org. And before Latasha, we heard an interstitial by our editor, Taj Easton, all about BFFs. Folks, you might already be working on a scary story pitch to send us for our Halloween episode this year, and we really want them. You can send those to pitchesatrisk-show.com. But don't forget, there's also our holiday stories episode coming up at the very end of the year. Stories about Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Solstice, New Year's, or just stories <laughs> that are you know, set in late December. Stories about family gatherings and religious rituals and whatever Festivus is. <laughs> Send them our way. Anything you need to know about how to pitch a story to Risk is at risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs>